We're going to look first of all at Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, and then on to Ephesians chapter 6. So in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 8, let's hear the word of God. Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it divided. It had four head streams. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx, eh, onyx are there also. The name of the second river is the Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And then we're going to go over to Ephesians chapter 6 and the Apostles' instructions to slaves and masters. Ephesians chapter 6 and reading from verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Amen. We give thanks to God for these readings from his holy word. Heavenly Father, the very reason that we are here tonight, the very reason that we're willing to sit and listen to your word preached, is because we sincerely believe that your word is indeed a light that shines upon our path of life, a light that guides our feet. Heavenly Father, that is our experience and we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for that. And it is my own personal prayer that I would be someone of faithful lips tonight, conveying the truth of your word, so that all of us, in whatever station we find ourselves, whether in work or retired, whatever our situation, Lord, that we would be able to live according to your word and so glorify your holy name wherever we are and whatever we're doing. Grant us this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever considered this, that the Bible is a book written by workers for workers. A book written by workers for workers. Now, that is a very easy thing to miss Basically because it's so obvious. We know, for example, that Peter, James and John were fishermen. And we know that Matthew was a tax collector, probably more like customs and excise. The Apostle Paul, a tent maker. Luke, a doctor. Lydia, a businesswoman. Joseph, our Lord's earthly father, a joiner. In the Old Testament, we meet farmers and shepherds, don't we? Sailors and soldiers. Midwives as well. 
There are poets and musicians and artists. Daniel, a top civil servant. Nehemiah, a civil servant as well. So nothing's changed to many civil servants. Joseph, we can say. Did he spend some years as a prison officer, perhaps? Noah, a boat builder. Of course, the variety of jobs in the ancient world were a lot less than they are today. Of course, there were no electricians or mechanics or engineers or software, enge soft, software engineers. But if you think about it, the kind of people who do these jobs nowadays were there just in the trades that were appropriate. Uh, so the kind of men in those days, they would be the kind of men who sunk the wells or constructed the siege ramps, uh, the, the kind of men who could calculate uh, the trajectory of a missile. If they ate bread, it had been baked by a baker. If they ate meat, it had been prepared by a butcher. The people we read about on the pages of Scripture were, by and large, workers. Work is so much part and parcel of everyday life in the Bible. And it's staring us in the face. And so often we miss it. We just don't see it. And I think that is a pity. Because we do have a tendency, do we not, to underestimate the value of our work. And I wonder if we sometimes fall into a trap of separating our working lives from who we are and what we are as Christians. Is that a trap we sometimes fall into? I wonder, do you look at me as a minister and think that what I do is a calling rather than a job? So this evening I'm going to take the opportunity to talk about work. What does the Bible say about work? Is it a curse or a blessing? What difference does being a Christian make to how we work? And here in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through to 9, the Apostle Paul addresses those who did most of the work in the Roman Empire. The slaves. The slaves. Probably about a third of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. He tells them how to be Christian slaves. How to serve their masters. And he also has something to say to their masters as well. About how to be a Christian master. And actually, it's not difficult at all to transfer what Paul says about the slave-master relationship to the employee-employer relationship. Because the ruling principles hold good. That whether you're a slave or a master, whether you're a worker or a boss, we all belong to Jesus. We all belong to Jesus. Everything we do is for God's glory. So as I said earlier on, in recent weeks we've been looking at the impact that being a Christian makes on some of the most fundamental relationships that we have as human beings. The husband and the wife, the parent and the child. And Paul's teaching comes within that greater context of living as God's holy people. Being a Christian means we make a break from the old life, the old kind of life, the life without Christ, life outside of Christ. So he says back in chapter 4 verse 17, So I tell you and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of the thinking. And again he says in chapter 5 verse 8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Live as children of life. So this will affect how we behave. So for example, we don't tell lies. We tell the truth. We put a filter over our lips so that we say nothing unwholesome. We prize sexual purity. We stand back from anger and fighting and rage and malice. And for the Christian wife, it means being willing to submit to her husband. The husband 
who is willing to die for her. For Christian children, it means obeying our parents, who are doing all that they can to teach us the true meaning of life, as much by example as by what they say. Practical holiness. Practical holiness. A holiness that goes with us wherever we go. In the home, at school, at college, in the office, at the shop, in the gym, wherever we are. It goes with us wherever we are. So we've seen practical holiness in the home. Husbands and wives, children and parents. Let's now look at what practical holiness looks like in the workplace. In the workplace. Now, I just want to say one thing before I get down to details. And it's a bit of a preliminary remark. And it's not unlike what I said a few weeks ago, uh, or last week, about children in chapter 6, verse 1. That, you know, isn't it interesting that Paul actually addresses children? We should not allow the simple fact that Paul addresses slaves to be overlooked. Because this is totally unprecedented in the ancient world. In the ancient world, there was plenty of advice for masters. Basically, how to get the most out of their slaves. Slaves were regarded as human tools. But nowhere else in ancient literature are slaves addressed as people who have responsibilities. People with responsibilities to others. Nowhere else. And again, the very fact that Paul writes specifically to slaves means he's expecting slaves to be there in the congregation. He's expecting slaves to hear what he's writing. And friends, it is remarkable. We cannot overestimate how remarkable it is that slaves and masters would be sitting together just as you are this evening. Quite unprecedented. You may be aware that over the years certain people have criticised the early church for not agitating to abolish slavery. Really, they've got no concept of what life was like back then. There is in the Bible a tacit acceptance of slavery and to criticize that is to have no understanding of the ancient world there was no movement for the abolition of slavery in the roman empire do you know it never even entered anybody's head it just it just would never have occurred to anybody and take into account the early church was small no political clout slavery was so ingrained into the fabric of society nobody could conceive of a world without slaves. The whole economy of the Roman Empire would have collapsed without slavery. So, did Christianity make any difference? Well, it did, you see. It did. It did make a difference. It made a difference because of the gospel. The gospel made all the difference in the way that Christians treated one another. Slaves and masters. And Paul writes in Galatians 3 verse 28, this wonderful text, there is neither Jew nor Greek Slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What a radical thing to write. All one in Christ Jesus. And here again in Ephesians 6 verse 9, he is reminding masters that they and their slaves both have the same heavenly master with whom there is no favoritism. So when it comes to the faith, it is neither here nor there whether you're a slave or a master. There isn't one faith for the slaves and another one for the masters. In the eyes of God, they were equal. That's what turned the Roman Empire upside down. And it was this teaching, this teaching with its inherent value for all humanity, that's what caused a social as well as a religious revolution throughout the Roman Empire. 
It wasn't political agitation. This inherent valuing of each and every human being. So, here in verse 5, Ephesians 6 verse 5, Paul says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Now, I want you to notice that in each and every single one of these verses, the Lord is mentioned. Verse 5, just as you would obey Christ. Verse 6, but like slaves of Christ. Verse 7, as if you were serving the Lord. Verse 8, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone. What am I, what, what's my point? My point is that everything we do is ultimately for the Lord. It's all done for his glory. Yes, of course, we're working to earn a wage. Yes, of course, our work benefits our employer. And we hope somehow contributes to the economic prosperity of the country. That's all true. But if, as a Christian, I realise that the purpose of human existence is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, as we were saying this morning, that must include my work as well. That must include my work. And therefore, I have an inner commitment to my work that goes beyond my commitment to my boss and what he expects from me. Verse 5, with sincerity of heart. Verse 6, not only to win their favour when their eyes on you. Verse 7, serve wholeheartedly. You couldn't find a better example than Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph in Potiphar's house. We're told that when Potiphar saw that Joseph could be trusted, he put him in overall charge. It actually says in Genesis 39 verse 6, that with Joseph in charge, Potiphar, his master, didn't have to concern himself about anything except the food on his plate. Didn't have to worry about anything. Joseph took care of it all. Such was Daniel's integrity that when his enemies tried to uncover any corruption, you know, in order to accuse him, there's nothing to go on. There was no corruption. No financial jiggery-pokery. They actually had to invent a new law prohibiting the praying to, to any god except the king himself. Nehemiah, so trusted that whatever he asked of the king, the king gave him. These were men who were acutely conscious of who their real master was, who they were really serving. And it made a difference. It made all the difference. So let me ask you tonight, what is your attitude towards your work? Now let me be clear. I am not only speaking to those of you who, let's say, will be leaving the house tomorrow morning, I don't know, 7, 8 o'clock, I don't know. I'm not just speaking to those of you who are going to be going out to work tomorrow morning. I'm not just speaking to those of you who can look forward to a wage slip at the end of the month. I'm also speaking to those of you who stay at home to do the cooking, the cleaning, the shopping, the childcare, the gardening. I am also speaking to those of you who are retired, but perhaps have committed yourselves to some voluntary project or helping with the grandchildren. I am speaking to those of you who are in the professions and who have a trade. I'm talking to those of you who maybe sit at a computer all day long or else you're outside getting soaked in the rain or maybe you are giving advice to clients. And I'm also speaking to those of you who are managers, who are bosses, who are partners. What is your attitude to your work? Full-time, part-time, permanent, temporary, voluntary, white-collar, blue-collar? 
Who are you doing it for? That's the question. Who are you doing it for? Who is your real boss? Who are you really serving? Whose will do you truly want to fulfill? That is the question. The answer to these questions will make all the difference to the kind of worker you are. All the difference to your attitude to those that you you work beside. Your attitude to how you do your job. If you think about it, there's there's two, two attitudes to work that are actually at odds with the Bible. The first attitude is hostile. The attitude that work is a curse and that work is to be avoided at all costs. Uh, J.M. Barry, you know, who wrote the Peter Pan stories, uh, he said, nothing is really work unless you'd rather be doing something else. And so for people with that attitude, work is a necessary evil. Yes, it's a way of earning a living, but it's a means to an end. So that's one end of the spectrum. Other end of the spectrum, of course, are the workaholics. Those who regard work as the be-all and end-all of their existence. And their entire identity is tied up in their work. What they do is who they are. Well, neither of these views is biblical. Earlier on, I read to you from Genesis chapter 2, and I want you to note there that when God created Adam, he placed him in a garden, the Garden of Eden, and he gave him something to do. He gave him something to do. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. This is because humanity, male and female, we are created in the image of God, and God is a worker. God is a worker. Well, the very act of creation demonstrates that, doesn't it? And do you remember what the Lord Jesus said to those who were accusing him of breaking the Sabbath when he healed the lame man on the Sabbath day? And Jesus said, it's John chapter, five, John chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus said, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. God, the living God, the true God is a working God. He's not like the Greek gods who loafed about on Mount Olympus. The true and living God neither slumbers nor sleeps. Work is a creation ordinance. It is part of our vocation as human beings. If we have antipathy towards work, it's because of the fall. It's because of the fall. So we go into Genesis chapter 3, and God curses creation. And then as a result, the result of human sin, work becomes a struggle. So we read Genesis 3 verse 19, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. That's where we get our antipathy towards work. And I'm sure you'd agree with me that there's, there are few things more soul destroying than working for no reward or to see the fruit of your labour go up in smoke, either literally or metaphorically. Isn't it one of the things that distresses farmers these days? that it actually often costs them more money to raise a beast than they can sell it for in the market. And of course you take into account the feed and the vets bills and it turns out the farmer's out of pocket. Well no business can survive on that model, that model of economics. So let's be honest, work isn't always a pleasure. And we envy the man or the woman who loves their work and enjoys their work. We'll be reading in Ecclesiastes in the morning, Ecclesiastes 3 verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot. And can I just say to you, if you're not enjoying your work at the moment, here's some hope for you. Here's some hope. Because part of the redemption of all things, when all things in heaven and on earth are brought together under Christ, 
as we're told in Ephesians 1 verse 10. Part and parcel of the redemption of all things is the redemption of work. And there's a wonderful picture in Isaiah 65 of life in the new heavens and the new earth. And it says in Isaiah 65 verse 21, they will build houses and dwell in them. So there's not going to be any repossessions by the banks. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not toil in vain. They will not toil in vain. You might be aware that uh, the late John Stott wrote a book called Issues Facing Christians Today. And in that book he has a very helpful essay entitled Work and Employment. And I read that essay for my sermon tonight. And there are two truths about work which he says we need to understand as Christians. Two truths about work. And he says, first of all, that work is intended for the fulfilment of the worker. For the fulfilment of the worker. And that goes back to the fact that it is our basic makeup as human beings, made in God's image. We should find fulfilment in our work. And isn't it true that there's, uh, there's no satisfaction like a job well done? And Stott says that if we are idle instead of active, or destructive rather than creative, we are actually denying a fundamental aspect of our humanity. Now it's important to add to that that work is not essential to us being a human being. And actually when you think about it, the climax of the seven days of creation is actually the Sabbath, the Sabbath rest. So you could say that we are at our most human, not when we're working, but when we set aside our work for worship. And that's important. When we set aside our work. So yes, we're created, we find fulfillment in our work, but that is not the climax. It's that rest. Resting from the work, like God himself, in order to worship him. And if you think about it, that Sabbath rest actually protects us from being so absorbed in our work, obsessed with our work. It protects us and it allows us, even forces us, to look up and beyond this world to our Creator. That's the value of that Sabbath rest. So that's the first thing he says about work, that we find fulfillment in our work. And here's the second thing that we need to understand that it's not just, work isn't just for us individually, our own personal fulfillment, but work is also for the, the benefit of the wider community. The wider community. And actually, we touched on this a few weeks ago when we looked at Ephesians 4 verse 28, where Paul says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need that he may have something to share with those in need. We don't just work for ourselves. And so uh, John Stott says that the Bible regards work as a community project. A community project. I think one of the most galling aspects of this current age of austerity, as it's called, is the knowledge that somewhere, somebody's actually making a lot of money out of all this. Making a lot of money out of everybody else's misery. And we've been seeing in the news how those who won government contracts uh, during COVID to provide PPE, uh, personal protection uh, equipment, uh, they, they used the opportunity to line their own, their own pockets. Well, that is not the Christian attitude towards work. 
It's not about every man for himself. But again, we go back to this, that everything we do should be for the glory of God. And how we work should demonstrate that we belong to Jesus. So we should be striving for excellence. We should stand against the petty bickering of office politics. We should be a byword for trust and helpfulness and reliability. We are to be salt and light in our workplace, just as much as anywhere else. That our very presence should help to transform the values and the structures, the ethos of the companies that we work for. Because again, when you look at most workplaces, most workplaces are, to all intents and purposes, they're atheistic. In the sense that the assumption is there's no God. There are very few workplaces that, that, that work on the basis that there is a God that we're accountable to. They are, they are, to all intents and purposes, atheistic. There's no God and he's not going to interfere in our business. Well, practical holiness challenges that assumption. Practical holiness questions the dominance of the bottom line. It shows concern for integrity, for reputation, for other people's feelings. And here's another point I want to make about work. Uh, those of you who, who are still in uh, employment, formal employment, where do you spend most of your time? The vast majority of your time is spent at work. And, and where you work, most people aren't Christians, are they? Uh, your workplace the office, the school, the, whatever it is. You, your workplace is as much a mission field as Kirkland uh, Hill and, and, and Blount. Look at the people you work beside. They're stressed out. They're struggling. They're hurting. They're worried. They're asking questions, big questions. They want to know, is there more to life than work, 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 work? And you, of course, you know there is. You know there is. Now, as a minister, I really don't get many opportunities to, to, to speak to non-Christians. I, I, I have to make the opportunities. I have, to, I have to go out my way. But you don't. You're there. Just about everybody you see from Monday to Friday is not a Christian. Just about everybody you see will have nothing to do with church. So it's not ministers or vicars or priests or bishops who are the key to revival in Scotland today. It's those of you who are working in offices and factories and schools, in shops, in the clubs, wherever you are. My job, and I explained this when we looked at Ephesians 4 verse 12, my job is to equip you for the working week, to enable you to function as a Christian from Monday through to next Sunday. And not just to survive, but I hope and pray to thrive. To thrive. That's my job. And I hope you appreciate it. I work hard at it. Friends, your work. Full-time, part-time, voluntary, permanent, term temporary. It's important. Your work is important. Thank God for your work. Thank God that you've got something to do. If you're struggling, maybe you're under pressure, maybe you've been asked to do something that's morally dubious. Here's a wee idea I came across. Have something physical to remind you whose slave you are. Maybe on your screensaver, maybe a card with a text on it, maybe a wee cross or, or the, the, the fish 
Something that just reminds you of who you belong to. The Bible is a book by workers for workers. Our faith isn't just a Sunday faith, is it? It's for everyday living. So whether you're selling or buying, teaching or learning, whether you're out on the beat or behind the counter, whether you're doling out advice to clients or mucking out the barns, whether you're caring for folks in hospital or in their homes, let's listen to what Paul says here. And serve wholeheartedly as if we're serving the Lord and not just men and women. And also remember, friends, that whatever the rewards are here on earth, the Lord will reward everyone for the good that they do, whether you're a slave or free. Let's pray together. And God and our Father, we do recognise the gift of work, of something to do that is meaningful, whether it's at home or out of the home, whether we get paid for it or it's voluntary. We see, Lord God, that it's part and parcel of what it means to be created in your image. Heavenly Father, if we are indeed to be salt and light in this world, help us, we pray, to be that salt, to be that light, at our work, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whoever we're with, Lord, so that you will receive all the praise and all the glory. And Lord God, to take with us, as it were, the Lord Jesus Christ, even into that office, that factory, that whatever that is, that shop, to take Jesus with us and to shine for him so that people will see that there is a difference because we're Christians. We ask this in his name. Amen.